Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This will be a slightly longer introduction than usual, so if you are one of the kind of people who wants to skip ahead straight into the content, uh, then this will be rather than three minutes, two and a half, which is my normal, this will be probably about five minutes. Uh, so if you want to skip ahead to that, this week's uh, episode is with Will Anderson, who is just an incredible comedian. If you're Australian, you definitely know him. If you are somewhere else in the world, uh, he is, I think, probably the most well-known or one of the most well-known comedians in Australia. He's also incredibly generous with his time and with younger acts. And I was uh, thrilled to have him on the podcast. I've had him on before. We sat in his flat in Melbourne and talked about all sorts of really fascinating things, this, you may notice the quality of my voice is slightly different. That is because my recording device shut down um, in the middle of that podcast. So this episode is, and this introduction is done on my backup device. And I think it sounds a little tinnier, but the quality of, you can still hear what we're saying and it's still good sound quality. Uh, that is something I'm getting fixed. My Zoom H4N recorder is in the shop getting fixed and we will return to the normal sound timbre as soon as that is back in my hands, which will be Monday when I return to Sydney from Perth. I'm currently in Perth uh, with Mythos, which I open tomorrow night in Perth, and I've just come off the back of a week of holiday with my family, which was delightful after Melbourne Comedy Festival, which was a month of no days off, just doing the show, and doing the show from scratch. I had no preview season for it. I hadn't worked out any of the kinks, so it went from zero to 100 very quickly. I had no days off the show other than two dates, where I one I flew to Hobart, one I flew to Sydney to support Nora Jones, the musician. That was a really interesting experience. I have mentioned it on here before, but just because she has this sort of casual approach to her concerts, even though they're in very big venues, uh, there was no announcement and there was no context given. So it was just the audience sitting in their seats, uh, preparing for Nora Jones. Then the lights went down, the lights went up. I walked onto stage and to an audience of mainly older people expecting beautiful jazz music, uh, I just did comedy for 20 minutes. So that was a really interesting experience and bringing that audience on board with what I do was also a fun thing because not only did they not expect comedy, if they had an idea of comedy, I, I, the feeling I had was for the most part they kind of expected me to do, oh, you're from the North Shore, North Shore people are like this kind of stuff. Not that they were not lovely and, and happy and on board, but it, it certainly you could see and you could feel I don't know if you're interested in this behind the curtains bullshit, but uh, you could feel their getting on board, that process of not knowing what I was or what to make of me, and then uh, coming to terms with the fact that they were going to get 20 minutes of comedy before they got Nora Jones. So that was super fun and interesting. I should say thank you to all of my Patreon supporters. It has been so incredibly lovely to get your messages, to have your support and uh, to speak to the ones of you who opt for that thing. It's just really lo lovely to be able to have this be a, a two-way conversation sometimes um, because it can feel a little bit like I'm in a room talking to the wall. Uh, thank you everyone who's come to see Mythos uh, and, and, and sent me emails and enjoyed it or even if you haven't enjoyed it, I, thank you for coming and giving it a chance. Uh, a thank you to the people who've been listening to the Audible documentaries. 
Uh, I'm quite excited. The trilogy has been nominated for an Australian Podcasting Award, and that'll happen in a few weeks, though obviously the space between getting nominated and winning anything is vast and full of randomness and politics. And I only realised that after having done a little bit of judging uh, for the British Podcasting Awards, how how much it is, as with everything else, just people being people. Uh, you don't realise until you're one of those people, I think. I've always found that. Yeah. Anyway, I should let you get on with listening to the podcast and not meander. I'm just pleased to be talking to you again. I'm glad that I figured out what was going wrong with my recorder. I'm glad that we are again having tea together. I'm currently having an Earl Grey uh, with a little bit of milk, which I don't normally do, just changing it up slightly. And I will talk to you next week. You're having tea with Alice. This podcast is with Will Anderson. So, who are you and what are you drinking? Uh, my name is Will Anderson and uh, I am drinking English breakfast tea with honey today. Like, normally I'm a coffee person, really, these days, because I do breakfast radio and so I drink a lot of coffee. But um, I normally try not to drink coffee after midday unless I need something that I need to be fueled by coffee. So we're recording early afternoon. Yeah. So English breakfast tea with honey. So what time does breakfast radio happen? Uh, I'm up at 4.30. So I normally, beverage-wise, oh, have a... brutal, man. So 4.30 um, is okay if you're not doing anything at night, but, like, you know, when you're doing shows at night and whatever, yeah, 4.30 can be pretty brutal. So I have, like, one of those, you know, coffee machine things uh, just up to my left, and so I have a, uh, a coffee at home before I leave. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we have a barista in our studio Um, and I don't mean in the radio station I mean literally (laughs) in the studio and he's from a place called Sonali which is like makes the best coffee in Melbourne so very lucky and so uh, normally when he comes in at about six o'clock he'll bring me a pre-prepared takeaway coffee before he fires up the machine so he'll come in with a coffee and he'll leave it on my desk while I'm working and then um, during our show, like, you know, they'll, they'll consistently make us and our guests coffee. So probably by 9 o'clock, 9.30 in the morning some days, I'll probably have like five or six cups of coffee easily. And uh, then I try to, you know, get through the rest of the day without drinking too much coffee. That's a wild amount of coffee to drink. Apparently it's very, very dangerous amount of coffee. But I go and get like my health <laughs> tested and stuff and... I have, like, uh, incredibly low blood pressure and things like that. So, I mean, there's a chance I might have a cardiac arrest. But of all the things that I've either done or still do in my life, I think that the six cup, if the six cups of coffee kills me, then I'm fine with You're that. all right. Well, I think it's interesting if, if for people, like, what their kind of drug of choice is as far as that stuff Mine goes. is most of them, or at least at some stage has been most <laughs> of them, you know. I've, I've dabbled around to see what I could find that I liked. Well, it's like Brendan Burns, uh, who's a comedian, used to take all of the drugs, and now he drinks probably 12 cans of energy drink a day. A lot of energy drink. And if you go A in, disturbing amount of energy drink. Like, a wrong, like if you go on a long car journey with him, like his sweat smells like I, plastic. I don't think that you need to be <laughs> in a long car journey with him. I think that you can smell Brendan Burns coming because you get a whiff of monster energy drink yeah, around the corner. He just smells like what I imagine a robot would smell like. <laughs> I would love if we've uh, discovered at some stage that Birdsy was like a first generation robot. <laughs> that he was first generation AI. 
that. Yeah, I've never, I've tried to never do things so much that I had to stop doing them. That was always my, you know, like I like having a drink or I like smoking pot or whatever. So let's not do it so much that it ever becomes the sort of thing that you're not allowed to do anymore. That's always been my attitude to those things. And there's been a few things. I like to take some time off, whatever my things are. So if I'm not getting up early in the morning, Mm. like I won't be drinking that amount of coffee. It's not like I have to on my day off still go and have six coffees or whatever. And, you know, it's the same with, you know, if I'm traveling to somewhere where, you know, you're not allowed to smoke pot, then I won't smoke pot. Mm. So, like just to make sure that I still can not do it. That's always, that's my, as long as I can stop, I'm happy to keep doing it. The minute I feel like I can't stop, then then I probably need to stop, <laughs> which I guess will be the ultimate irony <laughs> if I get to the point where I can't stop. And then you're like, then oh, like shit, shit, I probably, last week. It should have been last week. I should have stopped <laughs> last week just before I got to this point. What have you been wrestling with recently? Um, oh, look, there's a bunch of stuff in my yeah, real life that I won't go into, but mm. I guess I could speak about it in the way that I've been wrestling with, you know, how to combine, you know, my work life effectively with the rest of my life and what the, you know, particular balance of those things, A, should legitimately be, mm. and then the struggle of actually then, you know, implementing what that is and that you know probably the third thing which is that dealing with the idea that you can't do everything right that it's actually impossible like I'm certainly at a point in my life where I'm seeing the consequences of the fact that there are too many things in my life that demand my attention and they cannot all get my full attention and for a long time I've been you know, you cut a corner here or you compromise something here or you miss a birthday here or you forget to call this person here or you don't take the bins out here or whatever it is, you know. Mm. Um, you have to, you know, drive yourself crazy. Not, I'm not going to say that anymore. Drive yourself bananas. I'm trying to... That's another... Well, there you go. That's actually something else I'm wrestling with. I'm trying to... Uh, I, I'm not the sort of person who would ever, you know, and I, I don't think that I ever really have been, but maybe there was a time in my teens or in that kind of post-ironic comedy time where everybody was using the R word and things like that, or, you know, the S word. I don't think I've ever been a big user of those sort of ableist, you know, the, the really frontline ableist terms. Mm. But I am very, I, like I say crazy or mad or, you know, these things all the time mm. and so casually without even thinking about them. And as somebody who recently has, you know, had some like during the comedy festival I was having panic attacks for the first time in my life like actually anxiety you know like vomiting after the show just yeah because your chest was too tight and um not show related like life related but like you know really seeing you know the manifestations of you know I was talking to my therapist and she was like you know you're probably depressed and like because I've been surrounded by people who have struggled very much with like lifelong you know mental illnesses I've always kind of gone I'm fine you know I can get through I'm, I'm quite stoic you know yeah and I often overlook my own sort of you know wellness uh yeah because of that you know whether it be physical or mental but also like I hate the fact that I know so many people who struggle with their mental health and I so easily use those terms mm. you know like and they are easy to use you think what's the harm in saying oh that, that's mad or that guy's yeah you know, like I mean yeah I've had a crazy week or 
you know, oh, I was behaving like a lunatic. But the truth is that they are all, you know, very ableist words. And when I can come up with a, an alternative word, or at least catch myself using them so easily, I think that's important. It doesn't necessarily mean that I think that I will probably ever fully eliminate them because, you know, it's been 45 years of, you know, using them so casually, but I certainly am at least trying to catch myself and assess, you know, think about why why I, I use those ones so easily when I wouldn't use the other ones at all and how I've made that distinction in my mind. And, and look, there might be people listening to this who are like, well, that's, that's a valid argument. Like some of them are, like, you know, the C word's worse than the S word when it comes to swearing, like, you know, you can have different values of how offensive a term is, right? And context is important and all these sort of things. But anyway, oh, that's that's one of the things. Yeah, I, I try wild often. I'll, I'll use wild instead of crazy. Yeah, well, I, I, Carly Finlay, who is a disability advocate, a, yeah, a wonderful writer. And I did a podcast with her and she suggested bananas and I like bananas because it just has a, it's a strong comedy word, if nothing else. Like, you know, it's got good hard sounds banana like banana. it's a funny bananas banana. and like they're just yeah. there is something about that like slipping on bananas you know going bananas that to me is actually a really and it also because i am the sort of person who does swear liberally and talk about you know not afraid to make a dark joke or whatever the idea of using the term bananas like it's quite a comical word that counterpoints that as well so I am trying. I'm trying. I like that. I have a, I have a plan for my career, which is I'll do 10 years of like quite intense, hard work, complicated, meaningful shows, trying to say as much as I can. And then the 10th year will just be putting 100 banana skins on the stage and falling over for an hour. Have you ever seen that uh, brilliant uh, Steve? There's a Steve Martin Rolling Stone photo that's him. He's got a see-through briefcase which has goldfish in it like water and goldfish and then he's just surrounded on the on the street they've clearly put out like i assume they haven't photoshopped it it looks it looks real they may have photoshopped it but uh church my cat is currently uh trying to eat your microphone so (laughs) um and uh yeah it's a brilliant photo like that old idea of like you know slipping on a banana skin as being the the ultimate sort of like I think there is something that I really like about that, which is at the end of the day, no matter how seriously we take ourselves and, you know, what point we're thinking we're making with our shows or, you know, the complexities of us as an artist, there's still nothing, you know, that will ever be as funny as just somebody slipping, not just slipping, but slipping on a banana skin. Yeah, particularly if they've seen it beforehand and then they decide they're not going to and then they turn around and slip on it. I, uh, I really... There's not a lot of comedy that stands up over time, but there's a character that Sean McAuliffe used to do, which you probably couldn't get away with doing now, called Milo Kerrigan. Do you ever watch that? So I'm not a sketch comedy fan. No. Uh, It's just not really my... And it's not like a value judgment. It's like purely a taste thing. Mm. I can admire it and understand, but it's rare that I really like love sketch comedy. I love The Late Show. Um, I kind of like that live sketch comedy about that sort of idea of the pre-record. I've never liked Saturday Night Live. I've never really been into those shows. But I have friends who are Milo devotees. So I feel like I've seen probably every Milo sketch as repeated by my friends doing their uh, Milo Sean McAuliffe impressions. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, just in terms of physical comedy, like, it's gold. He's just run. He's just smashing everything. He's got really perfect timing. It's really funny to me that he's gone from that to being like one of these, like borderline political statesman figures in the public eye. I kind of like what I like about Sean though is that he is multifaceted. You know, Churchy, don't get down. Don't, don't do that. That's that's the backup. Um, <laughs> Churchy, you can come here if you want. Do you want to come here? You can sit with me. Come here. That is a very sweet cat. Yeah, she's uh, she started um, sleeping because the dogs sleep in the bed, but then she, she's now started sleeping either I'll wake up and she'll be spooning one of the dogs or she'll be like sleeping literally just on my chest, like right right up, right on top of my chest now. So she's absolutely gorgeous, aren't you? But you're not desexed yet, so you're not allowed over the fence because as much as I like you, I don't need nine kittens. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, like the thing I've always loved about Sean is like Sean's a million things. Yeah. Like he'll do, you know, the XPM or he'll do Mad as Hell, but then he'll do talking about your generation or he'll write a mad book or he'll, uh, you know, he'll, you know, he'll have all these. And even like, you know, Mad as, mad as Hell isn't like a straight political show in that way that, you know, a daily show or, a, you know, um, the myriad of, you know, This Week Tonight and those sort of shows. They'll, it'll make some of those points, but it will also sometimes just be a completely... Left-field absurdist yeah, moment. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Also, him on any kind of talk show, he's always deconstructing the show he's on in that way that kind of Norm MacDonald also does of everything he's doing is making fun of the thing he's doing to a certain extent. Which is why I think that, you know, for someone who is, like, he has a brilliant mind and he's a great conversationalist, but maybe never quite worked on radio in the way that people would have thought because he is constantly deconstructing the art form of radio and I don't think that radio is a medium that welcomes deconstruction. I think radio is one of those things that... And and much of it is about the way that people listen to radio. Mm. People don't... Deconstruction involves people paying attention. Yes, and right? they'll have radio on in the background. The background, or they'll come in halfway through a conversation. It's often why in radio they'll say, keep each bit to one idea, because you want the idea that, like, someone can pick up halfway through that you're talking about the booing of the football or you're talking about the Prime Minister drinking a beer or whatever, that you shouldn't be jumping from idea to idea because if somebody's only half listening, you're going to lose them. And I think with Sean, like, you know, from the minute the microphones turn on, he's starting to deconstruct the entire you know, process itself, which <laughs> is brilliant. Yes, but unworkably brilliant yeah, to a exactly. certain extent. Yeah. yeah, it's too brilliant for the uh, the medium in which <laughs> it's, 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 you know, do you get, travels uh, to pigs. Do you get Betty from Blacktown when you're working on the radio? What, I, what do you mean by so, that? So Betty from Blacktown, I remember when I was writing for some television stuff, that was constantly the refrain was got to write for Betty from Blacktown, the, you know, the man on the Clapham omnibus, your average person. And I always thought that the idea was that they thought Betty was quite stupid and probably stupider than she actually is. Yeah, I absolutely always think that, um, like, the minute you start pandering or thinking that your audience are idiots or whatever, then you, you're already lost. Mm. I have absolutely no respect for that. Like... But thinking about how you can engage your audience in the idea or how you can say, we're going to talk to this, we're going to get Jane Gilmore in on the... Like, you know, I'm just using an example. So we had Jane Gilmore, who's a 
you know, a, a brilliant journalist and someone who's, you know, really versed on, yeah, gender politics and the way the media portray, uh, you know, gender and the different ways. She does her thing where she'll correct headlines, you know, so, you know, violence against women and the way that it's kind of talked about and headlined in the media and things like that. And so around the murder of a young woman in Melbourne, we got her on the show as as a guest to talk around, you know, the media and the way it was reported in the media and, you know, to an audience that I think, you know, aren't normally hearing those things, you know, they're not, they're not reading her stuff, you know, online. This is, so then you've got to go, if we treated them as being stupid or not being smart enough to understand these things, yeah, you wouldn't, you'd never have that, you'd never have Jane on for Betty for, from Bankstown or, you know, you know, Macca from Mitchum or whatever, you know. Um, so then you've just got to think about, well, how do I, how do I, I'm interested in this. Yeah. How can I get them to the point where they're as interested in this as we're interested in this? And part of that is that we never have anyone on our show that we're not interested in, Mm. or at least that one of us isn't very interested in. But then it's about not assuming that the audience shares that level of interest. It's about inviting them in to find that person as interesting as, as you do. Uh, yeah, I always think of it as an on-ramp. Yeah. Of like, if you j- just... I think you can get anyone anywhere in terms of really interesting, complicated ideas. If you... I mean, that's what comedy is good for, having enough breadcrumbs along the way that they're willing to come with you. And then it's just about having a long enough on-ramp, finding the right dick joke that will help lubricate the way towards your point. Um, it's rare that the, the, the dicks provide the lubrication, but I understand the analogy that you were trying to... So there's this bit of my show where I'm talking about measurables and how like in science and literature and philosophy, we privilege things that we have better measurement systems for. So if we can measure it, we think it's more important money to happiness money is always going to be measurable happiness is never going to be measurable will always you know you put it into your equation as x and it comes out as zero priceless is as good as worthless Mm -hmm. Uh, motherhood or um uh, anything like that and so i do a joke about how men are obsessed with dick length or girth rather than intangible qualities like availability, enthusiasm, appropriateness of erection. You can have a perfectly proportioned penis if it gets hard in a children's playground, that's a bad quality penis. So that's a dick joke that takes us to like, quite, I think, quite a profound philosophical point that people might not have time for. Yeah, absolutely. But like the, I don't think there's one way or the other. Mm. So, you know, in that, I think it's perfectly valid to do a whole bunch of jokes for people who already would understand enough of what you're talking about to do it. Mm. Um, I've seen shows that I have loved where Mm. there would be no one in the audience who didn't understand all the, like, you know, whether it be going to see a live podcast of the little dum dum club at one end where literally 90% of the show is in jokes and references that only the people in the room would understand to, you know, political satire mm. that would only be understood by a room full of people who are already across the news. Yeah. Like that, you know, isn't delivered in a way that gives you, you know, enough time to, to catch up with what's going on. No, you need to know who, 
you know, uh, Barnaby Joyce is to understand the joke, or perhaps you need to know someone much more obscure than that. You know, yeah. maybe the general public would know that, but re- or rely on you already, like where the punchline relies on you already having a level of information in your head yeah. to understand why it's funny. Yeah, you haven't actually provided all that for people who don't know the the reference. I think that's all completely valid, and I, I don't like to think that one is more valid than the other, but. It's about appreciate. It's about understanding what it is that you're trying to achieve a lot of the time as well. So, yeah. so for me, I'm at my best when I uh, stop telling them what I think, and then in, instead I trick them into thinking that they want me to tell them what I think. <laughs> like that's that's where I'm at my best. You know, I I tend to when I'm doing it well create an atmosphere where people like hopefully get to that point where they're just like talk talk more about things that you're interested in yeah but but if i start by just talking about things that i'm interested in without creating the atmosphere of you know making them want that and enjoy that and sort of training them that they that they can trust me you Mm -hmm. know then i find that you know i'm not in a place that's good for my comedy now that i go and see somebody else do the exact same thing and i admire what they do like i mean you know, someone like uh, Tom Ballard in Australia, I loved his show during the comedy festival, and he he cares a lot less about, um, you know, letting the... Like, he'll say a whole bunch of things that are intentionally provocative to the audience or mm. intentionally saying, no, I'm not going to, you know, invite you in here. Now, that's not his whole act, but there are aspects of his act where, like, I admire the fact that he, you know, that he's not pulling any punches or that he's not you know, providing the other side or that he's not, you know, reframing. I'll give you an example from my show rather than talking about someone else's show. Um, when I first started talking about um, climate change in my show, there was about 20 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes on climate change in the show. And uh, look, just, just some people who don't want to hear about climate change. Now, either people who don't believe in climate change or people who believe in it, but understand the premise that a comedian talking about it is, is not going to change anything and they're already depressed enough about it and they don't need to hear my nonsense as well. And so when I first started talking about it, I wasn't really addressing those things. You know, I was just jumping into hearing my jokes about climate change, right? Mm. Whereas once I got the show good, like night four, night four it was, and sat first Saturday night, um, I just reframed that whole bit. And yeah. I started, instead of me kind of, not addressing those things or making fun of those people, I started with that. You know, I started with acknowledging that I was a hypocrite. Here's a joke about that. I started by acknowledging that a joke from this show is not going to solve anything. If you didn't believe the reports, it's not like I'm going to have a bit in this, you know, show that, um, you know, talked about that. And then I reframed the whole thing, like, which was a much more comic idea anyway, that I was now at the point after reading the IPCC report that, I, that the only possible good news we could have is that the deniers are right. That's the only good news that it could possibly be now. In fact, I'm 100% on board now with, I hope the deniers are right. I hope the climate scientists are wrong, and I hope that the scientists who work for the fossil fuel companies are right. I hope that, you know, Dr. Carl's wrong, and I hope that Andrew Bolt's right, because that's actually the best possible scenario. Yeah. Because if all the scientists and stuff are, are right, we're fucked. So... I started kind of reframing it, giving them permission to be who they want. Now, I wasn't really. It's a comedic reframing. Yeah. But 
in having that comedic reframing and acknowledging that thing first, I then allowed them to relax and not be sitting there going, well, it's all the bloody, or like, well, you're not like a joke from this show is going to change it, or any of those things. Yeah. I just said them all first, made jokes about them, and then they're like, all right, well, you've acknowledged all the points we were going to make. Yeah. You can, you can do your little jokes about the climate change march now. We're, we've got you. So that's when I'm at my best. I'm at my best when I give people permission to, even if I'm making fun of them or, you know, what they believe or whatever, where I give them permission to be invited into that. Yeah, and, you it's know, that unwrap again, that yeah. feeling of, of getting the obstacles out of their way. Yeah. Although I remember, uh, I think about 10 years ago, maybe even 15 years ago, I was in a taxi and the taxi driver had changed his opinion on gay marriage because of one of your jokes. Well, here's what I would argue. He, of course he didn't. Uh, what I would argue is that... It gave, can, him, it gave him a framing, though. I can argue... Yeah. My argument would be that you're never going to change anybody's mind through a joke. Like, I know that's... You're not meant to think that. You're meant to think that, you know, if you have the right joke and you unlock it in the right way, mm. here's what you can do. If somebody is already, like, looking to open the door, you can show them where the door is. Mm. You know, if somebody already believes in something, you can say to them, hey, here's another person that also believes in the thing that your brain is telling you. And maybe I've framed it in a way or maybe that I've, you know, you already get it. My joke's not going to change your mind. But if you're already thinking this, but you haven't quite found the words or the way to put it or to just jig it into place in your brain, a joke can do that. A, a, a joke can help people construct an idea that they've already got themselves to. Absolutely. Yeah, sort of floating. I mean, but that's a but very you can't. It's not thing. like you're going to be like somebody's like can, believes this thing that's black and then you're like well how about this joke and they're like yeah that is pink you have chased me around completely no 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 everybody's saying it's black and they're in their head going is it a bit more pink or like something to me and then someone else comes and says yeah it's pink and they go hey that's what i thought too actually you know what it's bloody pink putting putting the words to an incoherent feeling or an yeah. idea it's like that alice in wonderland thing of i don't know what i think until i've said it and sometimes you don't know what you think until someone else has said it. Well, sometimes I don't know what I think until I've said it many times, though. Mm. Like, it can take me... You know, I was talking to somebody about this just in relation to this latest show because it was the first time... Yeah, we both debuted shows in Melbourne, um, which was an interesting so experience for me because I haven't, I haven't done that in 15 years plus, probably. I've never done it. And, you know, so, like, the last week of the festival, I was at the point in shows-wise, where I normally would be coming into Melbourne. Mm. Completely different experience. But I said to people, I said, if you come on the first night, you see what I thought the show was going to be. And here's what I will tell you. I'm wrong. The show knows what it's going to be. And, and if you listen to it, it'll tell you eventually. Mm. But I don't know. Like, sometimes I, I think I know what I think. And then I start talking and doing it. And it goes from what I intellectually think to what I... I guess that thing of going from an intellectual, a purely intellectual experience mm. to when I'm at my best, which is when I bring in my feelings, mm. because I don't think, even though I have an intellectually rigorous brain, I don't think my comedy is at its best when it just is purely relying on being intellectually rigorous. And sometimes I can be too smart for my own good at the start. You know, I've like, Here's all these brilliant ideas and concepts and themes and whatever that, you know. But the truth of it is that that's not actually what I'm trying to do. And so 
sometimes you've just got to listen. You've got to listen to the show and you've got to listen to the audience and the feedback they're giving you about the show. But more than anything, you've got to listen to yourself say it and go, does that sound like something that I would say? That sounds more like something that I would say. Yeah. For me, it was about a week and a bit in of just going, there were all these things that I knew had to be in the show, but I wasn't sure why. And I'd sort of concocted reasons and like loops into the show, how I could link them in. But then just that moment of waking up at two o'clock in the morning with the matrix behind your eyeballs going, oh yes, that's why that's there. That's important because, and so some part of my brain knew it had to be in there. There's clearly something you know, subconscious working away in the background, just clicking it all together like a Rubik's cube. But you, you're conscious, as you say, your intellectual brain. Well, sometimes the other thing is you can like, I mean, I can be a massive, like I'll pull things apart and sometimes I won't put them, like I'll think that every part has equal value. Mm -hmm. So I'll be like, here's five jokes on this topic or five like beats, five separate sort of ideas that I've pulled apart and written a kind of thing around each. When really, all those five ideas should be in the two bits, you know? Like instead of spreading them out over all that time and giving them each their own moment, that observation about this actually would work better in that other observation. You know, when you're acting out that other observation, that next observation actually just belongs as a line in that that will give it depth and richness. It doesn't need its own... Like, you know, sometimes in a boy band, one of the guys just stands up the back and, you know, fills in the harmonies, you know? <laughs> like, not everyone has their, have their own solo moment. And sometimes I write everyone a solo moment first before going, this is in sync. They're just here to see Justin Timberlake sing. The others because dance up the back, you know? And um, so it's, there's that. But also we were talking before we started about, um, uh, I'm thinking about next year just doing... Um, a completely improvised show at the festival and so different every night you know just weaving it out of the crowd and out of my brain and whatever and I've done those before I do them at Sydney Comedy Store you know kind of every year and I love doing them but uh, yeah I love watching them but the thing that I realised this year because I was every night was really different in my show and I was kind of taking rather than sort of trying to replicate the experience of the night before or the best version of the jokes mm. I might have talked about this last time, but I have a I have a big theory that there are two very distinct states of, like, comedy, mm -hmm. and one of them is the process of creation, and the other one is the process of recreation. And so often, when comedy is at its most exciting, it's when it's being created, and even as a performer, you know, as you're creating it, you know, you have a connection to it in an instinctive way, because what you're doing when you're creating something in the moment is you're taking all those cues from the audience and from where you were and what you said last and the energy of all those things. And you're acutely aware of them in a way that you're not when you're trying to perfectly replicate the best. Because essentially what you do is you do 10 shows and you land on what you think are the best versions of all those jokes, right? And then it's essentially you've just done a like a sample group or whatever. You've, you've gone out, you've let everyone look at it and you go, all right, this is the order that these jokes works best in without thinking, and then you try to jam it into each audience. Yeah. You go, why doesn't this audience respond to this joke in the way that last night did? Instead of, if you're, help, if you're creating with them, which was what I was doing at least a certain part. So even when I go out of the improv stuff this year into the material, 
the material was different every night because I took the energy of what I'd already created in the room and then attacked the material with that energy rather than going, and now here's recreation. I'm going to continue to create in the moment, yeah, in each line, in whatever. If I came up with a really good version of a line during the festival, I recorded it all, I never went back. So the next night, I would just go into that bit, not remembering what the great line that I had to be, just trusting that if I was in the moment, and so many of the laughs in the show would be a look or a lean or a word on the way or a whatever, because if you're there, yeah. if you're in the moment with them, I've got 25 years of doing this. Just be funny. Get, get out of your own way, you know, and be funny. And I think that there is an authenticity in that because as soon as I write something or as soon as I do it a few times and try to recreate it, the authenticity is one step away. It doesn't mean that it's still not authentic because it can be. It could be my story and what I think and the way that I would say it. But what you have done is gone, this is the authenticity I'm producing for you tonight mm. rather than um, I have looked at you specifically as an audience yeah. and I am tailoring this specifically to you and this night and this vibe and and everything else. So I think there is an authenticity in that, in that creation rather than recreation that even if an audience doesn't intellectually go, this is why I'm enjoying this bit more, they, not, they sense it regardless of whether they understand why it is. It's, it's like uh, if somebody's hitting on you with what is clearly a line and it makes you feel really unspecial. That thing of they're pulling out some line that they've clearly used a million times. They're trying to solve your personality so it'll get out of the way of your vagina. And it is the most disheartening thing. Whereas if they're actually in the room with you, then you feel special. And then on the other hand, like this energy thing is a really interesting and I think almost impossible to articulate part of stand-up for someone who doesn't do stand-up. Every comedian knows what that energy is. You can feel it and you play with it. And even if you are telling the same joke and again and again, if you're in the room, you'll tell it a different way. You'll lean into it a different way or you'll back off it a different way because you, you're playing that. It's like a, a balance, some sort of weird, complicated balance puzzle that you have to, you can't have too much intensity. You can't have too much disdain. You have to balance them all out and you have to shift them every night even if the words are the same. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and what, when you're doing it well, that's yeah. what you're doing. And when yeah. you're not doing it well, you're just going, here's the show and these are the words. And I'll blame you guys that this didn't work tonight because you're idiots who didn't get the joke rather than me going, you know what, the way that... That's what a festival is really good at teaching you or reminding you of, which is Sunday night at six, don't want what Saturday night at nine wanted. Yeah, Saturday yeah. night at nine, they wanted that big show with, you know thousands of people and they were all cheering and they wanted big energy and blah 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 but like it's cold today and it's sunday and it's six and you know it's not as full and they don't want you to be coming out thinking that you're you Jazz know robbie williams or yeah, whatever yeah. you know like they, they they like a different vibe so um i don't know how we got onto that but it's uh, it is something that i i certainly creation uh, and recreation yeah so i've thought about that a lot this this festival and in regard to, you know, what it is that I genuinely 
want to do and where my work might go and how I will be excited by it. Because that's probably the biggest thing for me is that I have found that I've got to the point where I need to think what engages me in this as well, right, you know? Mm. Like what is... Because the audience will get a better experience if I'm fully engaged in this. And if I'm, you know, trying to make it very different every night, then I, I have to be engaged in it. Yeah. And you hope that that means that they then get the reward of being engaged in it as well. Well, yeah, as a general kind of rule for life, you could do worse as well. I think that often when relationships fail interpersonal, family, it's because you're trying to get something back some way that it was before, and that's not how life is. You've changed, they've changed. And it will only work if you deal with what's happening now rather than calling back. You know, you can't... There's nothing more annoying than going home to your parents' house and having them treat you like a child. It's frustrating. It makes you feel angry at them, even though that's how it used to work and that was lovely and that was beautiful back when it was like that. But if you were like that now, it would be pathological. So if they're in the room with you as you are now as a grown-up, that's wonderful. That's a nice relationship with your parents. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, look, it's, you know, there's a billion different words for for it that people use in life. But, I mean, it's an aspect of, like, you know, mindfulness really, isn't it? It's like it's a bigger version of that, which is like be here now, you know? Yeah. Like for this 70 minutes, you're here with these people, be here now. Like Barry Humphreys, who, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Barry Humphreys, there's a little little controversy (laughs) around uh, Barry Humphreys uh, during the Melbourne Comedy Festival. And... uh, Barry Humphreys uh, was asked once about uh, doing Dame Edna, his character, and what it was like to walk on stage in front of, you know, 3,000 people. What does that feel like? What thought is going through your head? And he said, ah, alone at last. And I used to love that. I used to think that that was a really cool thing to say. And I understand what he's saying, which is that you, everything from your world has to go away for that time because you can't afford to be thinking about whether you left the iron on or how your relationship's going or whether you paid your taxes or any of those sort of things. You can't, can't afford to think about those. But as I get older, I, I realise that you just, you're just not alone when you're performing. And if you think you're alone, if you think it's just about you up there doing what you're doing, then, well, again, maybe for some people that works perfectly. Mm. But for me which is, you know, I guess the thing that I'm most interested in, what works for me, is that I work better when I care what they think. Now, you then have to be on stage convincing them that you don't care what they think, right? Because that's the truth. You've got to care so desperately about what they think and then you've got to walk on stage like you don't care what they think at all. Because if you... An audience can also smell someone who is trying too hard. An audience can smell someone who needs it too much. You know, those things are really destructive to you, I think, uh, from a audience trusting you point of view. Yeah. Is you being too needy on stage. And, um, but you can't be good at it if you don't give a shit. So you've got to master that great thing of like giving an ultimate shit about it and then also being able to, you know, kind of not give a shit about it. Well, sort of having confidence that you've put on a good party 
I think, is the vibe that I feel like. It's like, welcome in. Here are the things I've got to show you. I hope you enjoy them. And you'll be devastated if people don't enjoy them, but you're confident that they will, rather than sort of walking around with a bowl of chips being like, is everyone happy? Are you all right? Like, that's a stressful party. Yeah, and so I think that what I thought that you used to be able to do was that you would eventually get to the point where you did feel that confidence, Mm. whereas I think that... Maybe there was a period of time where I, I did feel that, but like the last decade or so, you know, I don't feel that confidence about, you know, my work or, you know, other people's enjoyment or whatever of it outside of doing it. But one of the things that I've been able to develop as a survival mechanism is the capacity to do it anyway and look like I have the confidence that... Well, in fact, if anything, I do. I do have the confidence, but just from when the music plays until when the music stops. Yeah. Yeah, and that's fine because that's what I need it for. Yeah. I need it for that time between when the music starts and when the music stops. But often that's the only time that I can feel fully confident and in charge of it, you know. Um, but that's the time where it's important to feel fully confident and in charge of it, so... That's that's actually probably pretty lucky. Oh, imagine getting <laughs> It'd be better than if, than if it was the hour before the show. <laughs> the hour oh, of the show was a nightmare. Sweet. Or you walk off stage and then suddenly yeah. start feeling confident. Yeah. But I am amazed often that I, I can feel terribly before and I can feel terrible after, but for that 70 minutes in between that I can, you know, nobody would, in the audience would, would know in any way that I wasn't, you know, the most confident person in the world and had all these, thought I had all these wonderful things to say. But sometimes it's just about, you know, putting your, you know, kind of understanding your own fears and doubts and then just doing it anyway. Like, I mean, that's, I mean, that's honestly part of it is like, you know, I, I often think, well, I, I don't know if I, I think that person is right. I don't think I do have a great speaking voice or maybe I, this bit isn't as, you know, funny or maybe I am this or whatever, but I got to do it, do it anyway. Yeah, well, it doesn't work. Well, it it does work, but it doesn't work as well if you're not fully integrated while you're on stage. And again, I think mindfulness is such an overused term. I prefer to think of it as realism, like you're in reality. Um, oh yeah, look, I mean, I don't care what the word is. Like realism to me would be a, a term that I wouldn't use just because it would be confusing to other people. Yeah, fair enough. You know what I mean? If I said to somebody, you know, what I'm trying to experience in that moment is realism. Reality. That, yeah, that would give a different... I think people would interpret that in a different way, whereas if I said to them, it's kind of like mindfulness. You're yeah, just trying yeah, to be yeah, in the yeah. moment, guys. I guess I just, I'm just sick of people who use mindfulness as an accessory and as a kind of a proxy for being smug. <laughs> <laughs> But that's just because I grew up when Buddhism wasn't cool and I was the weird Buddhist kid in the corner. Well, I mean, you're allowed to... That's absolutely a valid thing, right? Like, if something that you've been raised with becomes, like, a trendy thing Mm. and then other people are kind of, you know, doing a, you know, a version of it that's, like, a... That's a a totally valid response to have. But I was... I was raised on a dairy farm in Gippsland, so I have no such connection. You have, yeah, to... <laughs> you're not bored with it. 
No. Imagine if people started treating dairy farming as the route to enlightenment. I mean, well, a lot of that is very mindful. I mean, it, it, like in that sense, because, I mean, dairy farming is, is very much, you've got, firstly, it's very solitary. So you have a lot of time where you are only going to be thinking, you know. Um, you know, you have a job that continually needs to be done. So, you know, like the cow, they, there is that sense of the cows, once you milk the cows, guess what? You're going to have to milk them again tomorrow and you're going to have to milk them again tomorrow. That's the nature of farming. And then you have that sense of it being affected by things that are out of your control. You know, like weather is the most obvious example. You know, you can go to droughts and floods and they both can, you know, devastate you and you have absolutely no control over them. So as a sort of sense of, like, you know, a way of looking at life, the idea that, you know, it, completing a task and then needing to, you know, do it again the next day, fill up the bucket again the next day, you know, to have that time to be in the moment. A lot of it is absolutely in the moment because, you know, of the practicality of it. And then, you know, I guess that big broader idea of, you know, there are some things in life that regardless of how hard you work and how good you are at your job, they're out of your control you know and that you have to accept that yeah you know that you can't no matter how much you complain about the drought it doesn't it's not going to make it rain and so i think that you know if you wanted to there'd be you know plenty of things that you could pick out of it that uh, you could use to start your own you know little little cow cup that might be the way to you know get put get people back to the farming industry you've just got to make it trendy yeah you've just got to make it like you know come to cow camp Two but weeks, milking cows. It's like a mindfulness thing, you know? Yeah, do yeah. it. I reckon you should do it. That might be what I do when I take over my third of the farm. <laughs> when mum and dad pass, so like a, my brother's a farmer, so he'll take over the whole farm. There's not going to be like a third of the farm that is is for me. But, um, but if there were, it'll either be growing weed if the conditions, you know, or I'll have a, maybe both. Maybe it'll be a weed-themed mindfulness, you know. I could see you as a cult leader. Yeah. Why not? Well, I don't want to be the leader, but, I, I, well, I need somebody who kind of is going to run the cult. Yeah. Oh, you know no, I mean? you need to be I the just need to obscure be the sort of, person who yeah. says sort of esoteric things yeah. that someone else then interprets into administrative formats. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's much more my speed. I don't want to have to be the person who's out there running the cult. I need somebody to do the day-to-day culty stuff, but I'll, I'll just, you yeah. Wear robes, wear comfortable clothes and say weird things. I mean, I'm like, now. Thank you so much for having tea with me, though. Are we done? I reckon that's... That is good because I was dying to go to the bathroom and I was wondering whether I should ask if uh, we could have a break so I'd get out of the bathroom, but we've got to the end. We've got to the end. That's a a perfect thing. Thank you so much for having tea with me. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, They can find me on the internet, but um, I am going to, as I said to you... Oh, well, you can listen to my podcast. I have a whole bunch of podcasts. Uh, varying different sort of things from absolute nonsense through to you know football to some um, you know kind of philosophy which is a bit more you know people who listen to this might might enjoy philosophy they can if uh, if they've never heard the podcast they could start with your episode because yes. if they like this they can find that and they can hear me talking to you and uh, I was so nervous for that um, but there's there's heaps of them and I've, like there's been a bunch of really great ones lately you know people who've been incredibly generous with what they've shared with me and, and the way that they've shared it so uh, check that out I am going to try to take a little break from being online so much so like I've got Twitter and Facebook and all those things but to be honest like I am going to try to 
I'm trying to step away a bit from, like, I, as you can see, I've got a pile of like a hundred books sitting next to my desk there and they are all unread. So all those books that are in that pile are books that at some stage in my life, I was like, I'm going to read these books. Some of them have been, like some of them I don't even want to read anymore. Like, but they are all things that at some stage I was like, I want to read this. And there's probably, I'm going to say there's probably like 70 of them, 70 or 80 books there. And um, I'm going to read some of them. I'm not going to read all of them, but I'm going to read some of them at the very least. I'm going to stop reading Twitter so much and I'm going to read some of those books. That's my, that's my aim for this year. So you can find me, but I'm not promising there'll be anything there. Oh, thank you again so much. Uh, find his podcasts. They are fantastic. And uh, I will see you next time. Thank you.